You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Denim Audio Network. Hello and welcome everyone to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad that you joined me today. We have a great guest in store for you and I cannot wait to get to that conversation. But before we do, I'd like to tell you about a few things. We're nearing, of course, uh, toward the end of the year, so a few things to let you know about. First of all, my book, The Characters of Christmas, is available. People like to order that book this time of year to do with their family and friends and church around Advent season, so you can get that. There's links to it on the show notes. You can get it anywhere books are sold. Also, my brand new book, children's book called The Biggest Best Light, co-written with my friend Brianna Stensrud, helps kids understand about the idea of the Imago Dei, human dignity, what that means for us to believe that all people are created by God in the image of God and have dignity and worth. It talks about sin and fall and redemption in the gospel. It's it's a board book for, for young kids. You can get that as well anywhere books are sold. We'll have links to that as well in the show notes. And then I'd also like to make a, a special appeal. If you like the work that we're doing here on the podcast, or if you like to read my articles in World Magazine and other places, or just generally like the kinds of things that we're doing here, I would love to invite you to give a donation, end of your donation to the Land Center for Cultural Engagement, which is uh, where I'm the director here at Southwestern Seminary. We'd love to raise some money by the end of the year so we can continue to do the things that we do, including this podcast and other things. So if God puts that on your heart, would you please donate? You can go to landcenter.org and click on the donate button. There's also a link in the show notes here where you'll be able to donate as well. And uh, we would be so grateful for your year-end tax-free contribution. Okay, let's get to our guest today on the podcast. Uh, I am delighted to bring to you Mark Sayers. Mark is a pastor in Australia. He is the senior leader at Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. He is also a prolific author and cultural commentator. Uh, he's written several books, including Strange Days, Reappearing Church, Disappearing Church. His latest book is a book that I have read and I've recommended to a lot of folks, particularly those who are leading. And it's a topic of conversation I've had with a lot of leaders around the country. And they ask me, have you read this book? It's really I think an important book, it's called The Non-Anxious Presence, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders. And one of the things that's just fascinating about this book is he really kind of charts how we got here culturally, both in the church and in the world. And he says that we're, we're, we're sort of in between two big moments, and I'm not going to give it away because I want you to listen to the conversation and I want you to get his book, but he calls what we're in it as a gray zone. You know, we talk about kind of disruptions that have happened through human history that have changed things. Think of the printing press, think of the invention of the wheel. Well, right now we're in the middle of one of those disruptions, both with the digital revolution and this worldwide pandemic. And he uh, has a real good biblical insights on how leaders should lead in this moment. And I found this to be true in my own life as I survey in our institutions and talk to leaders, that leaders who have a non-anxious presence, who are able to shepherd people well through difficult times and hold it all together with this, uh, through the Spirit of God, are really able to thrive and lead. And this is what people are looking for. 
So I am excited to bring you this conversation with Mark Sayers, all the way from Australia. We had to record later at night because of the time difference, but he was so gracious to come on with us. So let's join this conversation with Mark Sayers. I'm glad to have on the podcast Mark Sayers, uh, all the way from Australia, author of many books, including his latest book, and Non-Anxious Presence. Mark, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. No, absolute pleasure to be here and glad to be chatting. So I followed your work for, for some time now and really enjoyed your latest book, uh, A Non-Anxious Presence, uh, kind of about leadership in this kind of changing world that we're in. But before we get to some of the themes of your book, I would love for you just to kind of share a little bit of your background. Obviously, you're a pastor, you're in ministry, but you've also sort of have had a larger ministry in terms of writing and speaking and kind of observing the world in that way. So how did you find your calling in this way? Mm. Yeah, I think God sort of you know, through His grace leads you into sort of certain areas. And um, yes, I always been pastoring. Um, but when I was um, younger, in my 20s, I, I worked mm-hmm. sort of half-time pastoring, half-time for a Christian magazine here in Australia called Shoot the Messenger, which isn't around anymore. But very much it was looking at, at culture and popular culture and sort of interpreting it. And, and it was really an evangelistic mm-hmm. magazine, which used the themes of pop culture to share the gospel with um a wide audience and it was back in the old, you know, it's printed <laughs> and it was online as well. But yes, yeah, so I think that's where I got a real interest in, in culture. I also studied advertising in college. I never worked in advertising, but studied it, which also gave me that sort of interest of looking at the big trends and how people mm-hmm. communicate and understand themselves. So I think, yeah, I didn't, I didn't seek to, um, to really write in this area. It's sort of just, I was approached to write and yeah, and then God sort of used it. I think my interests in the world and culture, um, you know, I'm glad I've been able to use that in a way for the kingdom. Uh, honestly, you know, leadership in the last five to six years has been, you know, difficult wherever people are leading, whether leading in business or leading in ministry or in the community in some way. I- I'm guessing it's been similarly challenging in Australia as it has been here in the United States and other places in the West. As a pastor, uh, what are some of your kind of observations about the last few years in terms of your leadership? Yeah, I, I think Australia is unique. Uh, well, I mean, maybe maybe not unique. I mean, I think some other com- or other countries have a similar dynamic mm-hmm. to us where there's an ingrained cultural dynamic, which, you know, we call the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, it's the same in New Zealand and different parts of Europe and Ireland where, you know, leadership is viewed probably very differently than it would be in the United mm-hmm. States where there's a much more honoring of leadership where in Australia um, there's much more suspicion around leadership, which has its positives and negatives. <laughs> so on one level, there's probably a lot more suspicion around politics and all politicians of both left and right. So you get some cultural war stuff here, but I think not to the level of the US, but then there's just this, always this underground sort of, uh, yeah, attacking of leaders. <laughs> and so I think just, I've always had that dynamic as I think many leaders in Australia and other contexts, we have that culture. But I think that what I've noticed is, the world used to be far. Australia is very far from the rest of the world. And what you're seeing now with the digital reality is that mm-hmm. problems overseas come close. So there is an element where the US culture is trickling down 
Um, but then I live in an area which has a large Chinese population. And, you know, when the protests in Hong Kong started, that started to dribble down into our community. And, mm. you know, there's just a report I was reading about uh, in the Australian... Actually, I was reading on Al Jazeera of all, uh, and weirdly talk about Melbourne. And it was just talking about the increasing clashes that are happening around the world between Hindu people and, and Muslim people in places like Leicester in England. And that's been happening here. So the world used to be far, but it's close. So I think you're seeing mm. the local dynamics that we've always had culturally, but then these bigger geopolitical things that the, that the internet is bringing closer to us. Whenever I've heard you talk or read your books, I mean, I think the one thing that has been so fascinating is I feel like you're able to kind of zoom out and see kind of the larger forces at work that are going on in the world and even kind of see ahead a little bit you know, in terms of where things are headed, which is obviously just a great gift. Has that always kind of been something that you has been part of your leadership? I mean, obviously, your studying of advertising probably helped, as you mentioned, but has that always been something that you've been fascinated with kind of the, the movements in the world and kind of what's coming and what's next and how that impacts the church? Mm. Mm. Well, I think a couple of things like my, my parents were not in ministry, but my parents served in university ministry. So my dad worked at a school of building construction technology. And so there's just a lot of overseas students. So I grew up around just all different cultures in my house as my parents would do Bible studies and have different events. And so I think growing up, I was always really fascinated by the world and different cultures. Um, I think probably when I first started looking at culture and sort of gospel issues, um, and maybe it was the job writing for this magazine, looking at pop culture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's almost this element where you're trying to read the culture through, you know, we were <laughs> you know, reviewing a Beastie Boys album or something like this. Like, um, <laughs> uh, I remember at the time you're sort of looking to these sort of things of, of trends, if you like. But I think as I've tried to understand where culture's going, my my view has gotten broader and broader and, and sort of higher and higher. And, and I think increasingly, you know, even now, I'm you know, more aware of how even two people talk a lot about culture wars, but you know, my belief is that culture wars are driven by geopolitics more than anything. Mm. And I think when you look at the big geopolitical shifts, that does enable you to see ahead. Um, so I think that's probably, yeah, it's almost like I feel like I've, I've sort of um, panned back into a bigger sort of uh, uh, vista and I think that that's, yeah, if, if you want to see the world, where the world is going, or if you want to see where culture is going, see where the world is going, is, is sort of how I'd summarize that. Mm. One of the things you say early on in uh, A Non-Anxious Presence is, you know, you talk about the different disruptions in world history, and we can think of some major ones, right? The, the invention of the printing press, the industri- industrial revolution. But you're saying that today's, as you put it, today's convulsions the shifts today are happening at a much faster and a much bigger scale that today's disruptions are even, I guess, bigger and more disruptive than in the past. Uh, Can you kind of explain that, why you believe that? Well, I think the world has become more connected. So, for example, the printing press, um, when it was invented, may not have affected people, say, in the Indonesian archipelago in the same way that it affected people who were in the heart of Europe. But because we live in a connected world now, changes that happen anywhere in the world ripple through the world. Mm. And we're also at a moment where you have these moments where maybe there's one change in the world and that has a big effect. But then there's moments where there's a stacking of changes. So we have multiple changes. You know, there's political changes, cultural changes, technological changes, geopolitical changes, environmental changes. Um, 
you know, the, 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 the 1600s were a time when you had multiple things happening in, in the world at once. You had, you know, a quite a significant ice age happening in the world, lots of political unrest, uh, uh, or the mini ice age, they call it political unrest, environmental change. You had pandemics and there was tremendous change. So almost across the world, you saw revolutions happen or, or civil unrest across the entire world. And I think we're at a very similar, similar moment. But also what also makes it different is that the vision of the world that we've been building for some time is the world is a network. And that's been very much a vision of the world, um, which emerged in the middle part of the 20th century. So we're a network in terms of trade. We're a network in terms of uh, information, connections, migration, travel, uh, digitally. So in, in, a, in a system, when we've just learned this through COVID, um, things spread very quickly. COVID spread through the human system of relationships where one person you know, passing on a virus to another, you see how quickly that happens. It can go from, you know, Wuhan in China all around the mm -hmm. world in, in a matter of weeks. And so changes in the world actually ripple through the system. But in systems theory, crises somewhere in the world will actually then link up with other crises. So, for mm -hmm. example, you know, we had, you know, we've got the Ukraine war at the moment and that's spiraling into an economic crisis, but it's also an energy crisis that's spiraling into other geopolitical crises. So when you're in a moment like this, it's like a crisis. It's like a, a snowball that's going down a mountain, getting bigger, like a crisis then sticks to another crisis and picks up velocity. And so these sort of moments when this happens are filled with change and are hugely consequential. You know, so one of the big things I'd say is the world that, as we've known it for the last 30, 40 years, is going to radically change. And even this October, <laughs> the amount of things happening, you know, in this October, November, between now and the end of the year is just staggering the amount of sort of world historical things that are on the horizon. It's quite incredible. It's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm 44 years old. And when I was younger, you know, sort of the dawn of the digital age, you know, early 2000s, maybe late 90s, you know, it was seen being interconnected like this was only ever seen as an as an unmitigated good, right? It's going to bring the world together. We can cooperate. This interconnectedness, the fact that the world is is global and, and put together in large part through the internet, but other, other forces. Now, it, it's, you know, obviously we live in this global world and we're not going back. We live in this interconnected world. We're not going back, but it's increasingly seen as a negative, our interconnectedness and, and all the, the thing for the reasons you stated that crises kind of travel along these, these uh, pathways. To me, that's one of the biggest shifts in, in terms of public opinion, is it not? I mean, yeah. So there was definitely this techno optimism in the early digital era, you know, and I remember reading books talking about the fact that, you know, this would bring down dictators and, um, and in some ways it has like the Arab Spring in a sense brought down, mm -hmm. you know, the Mubarak regime. But then, you know, hasn't been replaced by some sort of, you know, let's buy the world a Coke utopia. And, you know, how, this is one of those things where I think my Christian theology intersects with my cultural reading in that, you know, I, <laughs> I believe the problem with the world is sin and human, human rebellion from God and brokenness. It's not the fact that we're just not connected enough. You know, if the problem with the world was that we just need to connect everyone, we would be living in some sort of kingdom of heaven on earth right now, but we're not. And what we've actually found is that, when you connect people, you actually enable, you know, the two sides of humanity to spread. On one side, there's incredible connected, like we're doing now, you know, we're talking and, and there's a positive to this technology because humans are created in the image of God. We are created to connect. 
But then there's fallenness as well. And that just spreads in a systematic way, you know, and you see the internet, you know, has been filled with some of the darkest parts of the human heart from pornography and, and addictions to gambling and, and online hate. And, uh, you know, you see the destabling force it's having on the world. And it's interesting, Marshall McLuhan, who spoke a lot about mm-hmm. um, the internet, also not the internet, but he, I think he prefaced it really, you know, he imagined it, the global village, you know, his global village idea was used early on in, in a way in which people were like, oh, wow, it's going to be wonderful. We all live in a village. But McLuhan, you know, he came from a Catholic background and had sort of a Christian worldview. He, he saw actually, no, hang on, a village isn't always the best place. Often, you know, village life is, is, is can be violent and, and everyone's in each other's pockets and, and there's dysfunction. So, you know, I think, I think McLuhan was right on that, that the world has become a village, but villages aren't always the, the warmest and, and safest places. So, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's, it's proven um, that one of the antidotes to sin uh, that has been suggested by a world of connectivity does not save us from sin. Mm-hmm. One of the things you really flesh out in a non-anxious presence is this idea that we're in this gray zone between these two kind of different worlds in this in this sort of massive shift. I know you can't like recite your entire book here and people really do need to go and, and read a non-anxious presence. You know, I, I really feel like if you're a leader of any sort, uh, this is an indispensable book. So we'll have links to that in the show notes. But can you describe, at least in brief, what you mean by, by this gray zone and by the, this big shift you, you see happening in the world? Well, often one of the ways that we understand history and the world is through the use of eras. Eras are really a framework or a container to describe a particular period of time. We may talk about the era of the, the founding fathers or the Victorian era, you know, the, the era of the Persian Empire. And normally what we, what we do there is we describe an era which is defined by one dominant power. That dominant power sets a political order. They set a cultural order. They define how we understand that time. Now, when that era falls, and often it's from the fall of a monarch or a leader, we say that era is over. You know, I think in probably, I don't know, you know, 100 years, they'll talk about, you know, British history just ending with the second Elizabethan era. You know, we're probably too close to see it now, um, but with the passing of Elizabeth II. So, an era is this contained idea and, and a period in history. But what happens is when we move to another era, it's never like a clean thing. It's never like... Uh, one era ends and then on Tuesday and then on Wednesday, the next era begins. That actually you see there's this, this shift. And often the end of an empire, the end of a civilization, the end of a nation, the end of a dominant power, a monarch, there's a, there's a fight for power. There's a fight to define the next era. And so in between those, those eras, there's actually this sort of murky in-between spaces. And the term I used was gray zone. Gray zone's a, a term that I took from sort of contemporary warfare studies, uh, and actually, you know, very relevant. It was used to describe the 2014 incursion by Russia into Eastern Ukraine, where people didn't know is it a war? Like, like when Japan attacked the US at Pearl Harbor, it was very clearly that Japan and America was at a war and then US Congress passed that resolution to say they're at war. And so literally at one minute, the US wasn't at war. And then a minute later, they were at war. But in 2014, it was this gray zone in between peace and war. What was it? How do you define it? And so, similarly, there's actually this gray zones between eras. What's confusing about them is there's not one dominant power. You can see elements of the previous era, so you can fool yourself that the era is still here, but the new era hasn't formed, so you don't know exactly which way it's going to go. And they're very confusing times. There's not markers there. 
There's not one dominant power. There's often cultural wars, civil wars, struggles, geopolitical conflict, battling of ideologies. And they attack your identity. They attack a sense of safety, of security. They create a lot of anxiety and fear in people. And so I think we've come to the end of an era that I think really, you know, you could put at the midpoint of the 20th century with, you know, I think the the American century, as the American publisher of Time magazine, Henry Luce, called it. Um, And I think it got intensified probably 1989 with the fall of communism, where we went from a Cold War into this what they call a unipolar war with America as the dominant power. We were going to have the internet. MTV was going to take over the world. Everything was going to slide towards this perfect, peaceful future. And everyone just would wear pairs of jeans and listen to rock music and everything would be fantastic. (laughs) And that didn't happen, you know. And we've seen these shocks. And I don't think they came in one moment. Could be September 11th. Could be the GFC. You know, could be unexpected political results like Brexit or Trump. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden people are like, hang on, we're not going the direction we thought we were going. COVID happens and COVID was an unthinkable that the world could shut down. All of a sudden, I think people realizing this is not going the way we thought it was going to go. We're not sliding towards a peaceful, progressive world. And what I find really interesting now, a big change where I think a lot of people have been noted, it's almost impossible now to find any commentator who's saying things are going to be fantastic in five years. <laughs> like, mm. like no one is saying that. Economists, environmentalists, technologists, uh, you know, even the most sort of bullish future type people like Elon Musk are saying like robots could destroy us, so we need to go and colonize Mars. Mm. I mean, you've got people like Steven Pinker is, is one of them. There's a, there's a, a small true believers hanging on to the scientific revolution. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're in this, this grey zone moment, which could go for some time. People ask me how long it could go for. It could be a decade or more. My friend, uh, Russian all press, who studied history and he looks at, looked at some of the Great Awakenings and stuff in the 18th century, you know, his, his argument is that it could take 150 years. So, I don't, I don't wow. know, um, uh, you know, how long this could be. But a new order will at some stage form but we're in between. I think we're entering into this multipolar world at every level, internationally, locally. Um, so this is the this is the context that we're going to lead out of. And so one of the things you talk about leading in this gray zone, I, I think it's fascinating what you have outlined in that book about being in between these two worlds, which which really maps onto what you see in the world. But you talk about in this gray zone moments that the loss of legitimacy and belief and trust in institutions that have come under significant pressure and pushback and, uh, and, and how that impacts people's psyche and people's level of anxiety. Ex- explain h- how, how that has happened. Cause I really resonated with this part of what you were saying that if you look around our communities, whether it's United States or Australia or most places around the world, that institutions at every level have just lost trust, whether it's the church, the media, you know, political parties, all of that. They've, you know, sports franchises, business, you name it. They've all lost trust. Everybody just kind of operates with this sort of low-level belief that that the institutions are corrupt, that they're out to get people, that they're hiding something. Mm-hmm. That has a tremendous impact, right, on a population. So explain a little bit about uh, why that's such a feature of this gray zone. So I think that there's two two parts to it. The first part is that an era is defined by the centralizing of power, normally in a dominant power. Um, so, you know, the, the dominant power since World War II has been the United States in the world. But then there's also secondary institutions that flow out of that. 
So, um, you know, it could be Hollywood. Um, it could be uh, courts. It could be, uh, as you said, sporting teams, sporting franchises. And what tends to happen is that as the dominant order begins to sort of drain power, so those subsidiary orders begin to drain power. So, number one, when you're moving from an era into a grey zone, one of the defining features is that power drains. And um, the Venezuelan writer and former politician, Moises Nem, Nine, has written a fascinating book called The End of Power about that dynamic across the world. And, it, you know, it's boardrooms, churches, everything. Power drains from a centralised authority. Now, the second part of it is that what begins to happen is there's a power shift. And um, another fantastic book is written by uh, Martin Guri, uh, who wrote a book called The Revolt of the Public. And what he says is that when you have basically an era of a dominating power, they can then tell the narrative. They control the narrative and they control the means of communicating the narrative. And so if you look at America in 1955 um, or 1962, you had a handful of uh, TV channels or TV uh, stations. You, you had, a, you know, very dominant newspapers and, and radio stations. And so the government, in a sense, could control the narrative through, you know, well, the people had who it was very hard to broadcast your opinions, and only a few had the money and ability to do that could do that. Guri talks about the fact that then with the digital revolution, what happens is the ability to do that is then released on mass scale. So people can start to find a different narrative and communicate a different narrative. And one of the things that um, the digital revolution does is it, it exposes. So the person who is in an organization and the dominant, let's, let's pick a corporation corporations dominant narrative they can define through advertising public relations then all of a sudden you've got a few people in that organization who are like hang on there's a different story here say there's fraud or environmental um you know abuses and they can start to tell that story just by putting it on their facebook page or twitter or writing a blog post or making a youtube video about it and so there's a power shift that happens at that moment because everyone can communicate so corruption injustices, bad behavior can be exposed. And so we're seeing that. We're seeing that across the world. And I used the example before of the Arab Spring, where in Tunisia, um, a, a sort of street vendor set themselves on a light and it, it was filmed. Now, interestingly, I think Guru talks about that a few weeks earlier, something similar had happened, but it wasn't filmed. But this image then went viral. It caught resonance throughout the Middle East and you saw various governments fall. Now, the interesting thing, too, is that whilst, in, whilst injustice is able to be exposed, it's a much harder to build. So the tools mean that you can drain power, but everyone struggles to actually build power. So, for example, what happened after the Arab Spring is it wasn't the Liberal Democrats and the activists who were using digital forms to actually create a new government in Egypt. Ikran or the Muslim Brotherhood, who had a pre-existing structure of power, then essentially came to power in in egypt hmm. so it's really hard to build so at this time great skills for pulling stuff down really difficult to build so institutions injustices are easily exposed but if you look at any form of human endeavor any form of building something institutions are needed to build things so we need institutions at the same time in my country or my city at the moment there's tremendous you know, conversations around our health system about how do we deal with what they call rush moments when there's lots of paramedics need to go out because COVID's placed a lot of pressure on everything. Um, so it's interesting at the same time we're, we're 
attacking institutions, but also we don't not want institutions, we want good institutions. But at this moment, it's really hard to build them because as soon as you make any mistake, any error, or even your enemies are in a sense empowered to pull down institutions. So that, that's sort of some of the dynamics at play. I want to pivot a little, little bit to leadership because there's so much valuable stuff in, in your book about leadership that I really resonated with. And one of the things you said was, um, and I'm going to read this from page 33, even in the seemingly darkest and most con- confusing times, God still brings forth a new cohort of leaders, ordinary people with an extraordinary role to play as carriers of his seed of renewal. Talk about the way God raises up leaders in these moments, the gray zone moments, and the kinds of leaders we need to help lead institutions and communities and churches. Maybe, maybe talk about that. Well, one example is something that happens in the 18th century where because of the political turmoil that had happened in the 1600s, the British government um, doesn't let certain people preach. And you have this system where preaching in Anglican uh, you know, pulpits is very much controlled by the government and they want a certain kind of um, expression of Christianity that doesn't upset the apple cart. And so you have people like, um, you know, George Whitfield and John Wesley, who are actually then banned from preaching in places like London and Bristol. Now, at that moment, you know, often people talk about, oh, they were super missional and they went and preached in the fields. But also the preaching in the fields happened because they were banned from preaching from the key pulpits. (laughs) And so here's this moment where you've got these two young guys who are improvising, really unlikely characters, mocked, laughed at for, you know, their holy club at Oxford, very much on the margins of the British establishment. They were at Oxford, but very much on the margins of it. And you see how at that time in the world, you know, had other people like Jonathan Edwards, you had people all across all across the world who at the same time God was doing something and these seeds of renewal being sown in the world. What brought those seeds out were actually parts of difficulty. You know, Jonathan Edwards was looking at what was happening demographically in his area. There was a lot of young people who were delaying marriage because of some economic reasons and were staying with their parents longer. This was creating all this behavior amongst young adults. And he begins to pray for the Lord to do something. And you have this, you know, outbreak of this renewal that happens um, in his area. So you see at these moments when just when the sort of previous order is seemingly disappearing and it seems like all hope is is, is going as well and the epitaph for the church is being written, at any moment that's happening, you know that weirdly off the grid, God is seeding actually new leaders to come forward. But often what the seeding is also linked to is a struggling and a suffering and, and pressure. And, you know, I think that at this moment, there's a lot of leaders I speak to who have found the last couple of years really, really difficult. They may even seen their churches half in size or had more conflict than they ever thought they signed up for. But what God is also doing in, in those kinds of leaders is also preparing them. You know, God's used difficulty to prepare us. And that runs smack bang into one of the great ideologies of our age that if it's good, it's going to be comfortable, <laughs> which is not true. And, and God uses difficulty to grow us. Yeah, that that part really res like I really helped me think through the past few years because, and I'm paraphrasing you, but you, you talk about our 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 natural desires to lead from comfort, and and that the institutions that we build uh, as Christians, Christian institutions, give us a sense of comfort, and actually there's a way in which we can lead without actually needing the the power of God. 
and how these rapid shifts and disruptions kind of shake us out of that. So I guess if you were asked answering the question, I mean, it's obvious by the title of the book, but what kind of leaders do we need in this moment mm-hmm. that can, can help very anxious people? Uh, as you mm-hmm. said, you quoted uh, McLuhan, who said, um, when ordinary people do not know who they are, they get anxious. So all these shifts mm-hmm. and disruptions are tearing at people's identity, tearing at their rootedness, tearing at the things that they thought were secure. So as leaders, what, what can Christian leaders, pastors and others do in the midst of the chaos? I think, I think there's a few really key things. The first one is when you're under pressure, when the culture is in turmoil and you find yourself in a gray zone, and, you know, that McLuhan quote is, is you know, spot on that, uh, you know, your identity is challenged. That's also an invitation that God invites us to place, you know, all of our trust in him to make Christ our identity, not our role, <laughs> you know, not seemingly what our success is. And when the markers, the feedback loops are gone, you know, we look to God as our, as our, as our, you know, feedback loop, um, our intimacy with him, you know, the vine. So that's number one. The second thing is that the term non-anxious presence comes from the family therapist and rabbi Edwin Friedman, who spoke about the fact that in anxious systems, in anxious societies, in anxious organizations or institutions, that the people who have leadership are those who practice a non-anxious presence. Now, it acts in his argument, and I think it's true because it's a systematic way of looking at the world, that there is this sense that the only way you can meet anxiety is by not being anxious. And there's a, there's a kind of infectiousness to anxiety, but also there's a kind of infectiousness to non-anxiousness. People are drawn to the, the person who shows calmness and is not overtaken by the infection that's eating the social system of anxiety. So, you know, the example I, I give is, you know, you may be at a town hall meeting and if someone yells out there's a fire and say the mayoral staff on the stage who before that moment was seen as those in authority, if they start screaming and yelling and crying, their authority will diminish in that moment. But if there's someone at the back who might not have any authority or any leadership position says, don't worry, everyone, here's the exits. Let's all just calmly leave the building. At that moment, they become the leader because they're showing a non-anxious presence. The thing I took took from... Friedman, though, is I'm not good enough in my own strength to continually be a non-anxious presence. (laughs) I think most of us probably listening are in the same way. When you experience attack, when you experience pushback, when you find yourself in the midst of a culture war, when you find that from your friends and family, it's really, really hard to maintain a non-anxious presence. And so, what I sort of argue in the book is that there's a missing element to Friedman's theory, which is that... It can't be a feat of human strength only, you know, that actually God's presence, uh, the fact that he's with us, uh, the fact that we can operate in his strength is actually the root of of what our non-anxious presence approach must be. Otherwise, it's just going to either be some incredible force of will or some sort of techniques of, I don't know, Zen emptying of yourself so you feel nothing. And and I don't think those things work. I think that a non-anxious presence has to be rooted in the presence of God. And so, therefore, there's an invitation us when we feel anxiety to go to God and in a sense to rebuild a relationship with him, not in the sense of needing to rebuild it in any sort of salvation sense, but more begin a kind of discipleship where when challenges and, and difficulties come along, take them to the Lord and, and to build, build um, courage in us 
And I, I think also just, just finally, one key thing I think younger leaders need to hear is that leadership is hard. Leadership is difficult. And I think we've been sold a, a, a fake idea of leadership that if you're a great leader, everyone's going to respect you and love you and just honour and, and one day is going to come your way. Uh, what happens is people resist change. There's a book called Leadership on the Line. It's a secular book by I think it's Heifetz and, and Linsky. And they talk about the fact that humans naturally resist change. So when you try and advocate as a lead, leaders, are instigators of change, positive change, but people often prefer dysfunctional status quo to positive change because it threatens their identity. So leading, you're going to have backlash. And the hardest is, it's not when the person you don't know who you can easily dismiss their opinion doesn't like you. It's when then those closest to you don't like you. And so partially what can happen is we can then find ourselves moving into a kind of leadership where we're not actually doing what God is asking us to do. We're not advancing the kingdom of God. We're not, we're not responding to his call in our lives. We're just keeping the crowd happy and keeping those around us happy. And happiness of those around us does not always equal kingdom grounds taken. Um, and I think that's a key paradigm shift for people to take. Um, so invitation to be a noxious presence, that can only be done by God. But we do that because leadership is difficult and you're going to find pressure, but that pressure grows us. I really like what you said about leadership being difficult, about leadership being hard and not assuming that if everyone's with us, that we're doing the, the kingdom work. It seems to me in the last few years, what people are really longing for is a kind of shepherding leadership. When I, when I look at scripture, the dominant model of leadership seems to be shepherding, you know, from old to new mm -hmm. Testament. And, you know, the kind of leaders who see themselves as more CEO types, you know, who are kind of declare things from the mountain have really not done well, or who are sort of out of touch with where their people are, but leaders who in the last few years have been able to kind of, as you said, be that calming presence, but obviously also a, a catalyst for change in the same way have really done well. I'm, I'm guessing you've kind of seen that as well, looking mm. around kind of your context as well. Yeah, definitely. I think like, particularly in Australia, Australia is very resistant to that kind of on high leadership. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's an element where there has to be an authenticity to who you are. And you almost have to sort of prove, not prove yourself, prove yourself not so much by your success as much by that kind of, I guess, caring for people or um, that authenticity that you're someone like them. So, I, you know, I've definitely seen that, you know, I've always seen that in my context, but I think you're right. We're seeing that everywhere. And it's interesting too, like a shepherd. So we do a podcast called Rebuilders and Daniel, who's on part of the team, worked for a, a number of years or worked for some time as a looking after sheep in the most mm. harshest part of Australia's deserts. <laughs> and <laughs> it's so interesting, like hearing his stories about what it was like to care for sheep and look after them and the snakes and, and fires. And, you know, so there's an element where I think also that idea of guiding people, guiding, guiding the flock through really difficult terrain. And, you know, he had to make really hard decisions. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a really fascinating talking to him, you know, asking him about it often, you know, I get a much more real view, which I think what the, the readers who, you know, were closer to, to the art of shepherding, reading, hearing Jesus telling, you know, some of those, those stories um, would have understood it. But I think you're right. I think that the one-stop, all-answer leader who is speaking from on high, um, that, that's, that's, that's in a sense works when there's a dominant era 
you know, and very key institutions. But in a grey zone, in confusion, people are looking for someone to lead them through the really treacherous terrain of a grey zone. And, and a shepherd is something, someone who leads a flock through difficult terrain. Mm, I really like that. One more question. You highlight also that in this digital age that people might be, we might be present with each other. People might be present at church, but they're, mm. they're actually being shaped by so many other outside voices. Mm. And I believe that to be true, that people's discipleship is happening sort of subconsciously through the, the inputs they get from social mm. media, from podcasts, from cable news, however they, they, they consume content. So how, how do leaders and how do pastors pastor in this age when there's so much else influencing the average person throughout the week? Uh, w- what is advice that you give in, in, in this moment? Well, the first one I'd say to pastors is if they're in the room, say on a Sunday or even at a larger discipleship event, or, you know, a largest discipleship event, whatever it may be, they're not necessarily with you. <laughs> the Connected Generation report done by Barna um, looked at, you know, millennials. Um, and, you know, they found that depending on what, what country you're looking at, you know, you're looking at sort of 8 to 10% of people, uh, millennials who are in your church, are actually what we would call, and a really quite basic framework, biblical Christians. And so, you know, I think, you know, number one, People are prime. Everything's discipleship. You're either being discipled towards Jesus or by something else. Everything's formation. Everything's discipleship and culture. So we need to think about our task is counter formation to the forming patterns of the world. And there's not just one now. There's not just the digital one or the consumer one. In a grows and there's a battle. Um, you know, one of the things that my observation of what happened. Um, you know, a lot of American leaders have spoken to me about the experience of. I guess, leading through the culture wars, particularly, you know, over the last couple of years. And really what happened was in that was that the networks that people were part of digitally or relationally become more powerful than actually the discipleship of their church and the power of those abilities to, to shape people. You know, and, and Dave Kinnaman, who, who wrote the Barna Report, says, you know, screens disciple. So my advice is Martin Luther, you know, had, had a really good piece of advice um, you know, he was at a time when, uh, you know, you had a large church, uh, but, you know, he, he, he asked people to look for the little church inside the church. And that was something that you see cropping up at all different times in renewal movements throughout, you know, the history of the church. Who is the group which are the remnant who are really want to push in and make them the focus of your investment and make that an invitational space. So you don't want to make that a little holy club that is a social clique that's cut off from other people. And actually, often when you really ask the question, who are the remnant who would give everything for Jesus, whose hearts are humble, who are open, who want to grow, it often doesn't coalesce with the often the most influential people socially in your church. Um, but look for the remnant inside your church. Look for the good soil. And, and invest in that group of people. Don't assume that everyone there is is with you. And part of what your role then is that you're almost moving people into that space uh, of invitation from, you're at our church, but we invite you deeper into this process of discipleship. That, that's how we you know, try to do it at our church. The other thing I would say too is, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I haven't you know, expressed this in heaps of places, but I think there's actually a dynamic uh, at, at the moment where I was actually reading uh, this Colin Hansen's book, Rediscover Church, which is about 
membership. Mm-hmm. And we got a little little illustration in that book about they're basically saying to people, why should you become a member of a church? And they talk about the universal church, which, you know, uh, is, is broad and wide, and which many people are part of. But then that has expression in a local church. And I think one of the things that's come out of COVID is the ability for the universal church to produce content has just expanded in our time. It's quite incredible. Uh, you can listen to that worship album. You can listen to that sermon from that preacher. You can watch that online conference. You can read that book. So that's expanded. And that's almost created a bit of a misnomer in people that, well, I can just be fed by the universal church. And, you know, I'm so grateful for all the resources of the universal church and, and eat it up. It's wonderful. But there's an element that I can't really be discipled by the universal church because people don't see me when I'm at my worst. I edit, you know, <laughs> I need to be around people who I'm doing life on life discipleship with in my body, in an actual place and time. So that's not a dig on digital church mm-hmm. uh, or dig against di- digital church that can still perform a role. But I don't think purely online forms just make us all universal church Christians, but then we inevitably, it's like algorithms on, on Spotify mm. or something. It'll push you down one particular genre and just keep driving you further down that way or Amazon recommendations mm. or something. Mm. So, so for me, you know, I, I really believe, you know, look for the remnant. Discipleship still happens, you know, in a sense, you know, life on life. Uh, Jesus could have done the most incredible multimedia <laughs> Um, you know, this obviously campaign, he doesn't. He spends, you know, three years investing in this group of blokes who you know, <laughs> don't always seem like the people you'd invest in. But, mm. you know, you see that then the church is, is born out of that, that community and, you know, the, the, the 12 and the 30 and the 150, whatever. But it, it's life on life. And so, you know, I think, you know, people may see me and, and see different things I've written and stuff like that. But 90% of my week is how do I pour into that? that remnant, you know, and who wants to join? Um, mm. Yeah. So th- that'd be my reflection on that. That's a great way to, to close our conversation. And I just want to thank you, Mark, for your time and uh, want to encourage folks to get his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders. It's a sobering book. It's an insightful book. But I love that it's also a hopeful book, that you're, it's not just, you know, uh, so, so many things like this are so s- deeply cynical, and you are filled with uh, biblical hope in here. Uh, and so I encourage folks to get this. We'll have links to this in our show notes. Mark, thank you for joining us from Australia to Texas here. We're thankful for your ministry. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Podcast.